Hello and welcome to Renoites. I am your host, Connor McQuivy. Renoites is a podcast where I talk to folks from in and around my wonderful hometown of Reno, Nevada. Today's guest on the podcast is Kimmy Cole. Kimmy is the chair of the Rural Nevada Democratic Caucus. We had a great conversation about voting rights, voting access, issues that affect rural voters, how to connect with people who live outside of our major cities. It's a fantastic conversation. I'm so excited Kimmy was able to join me. So without further ado, Kimmy Cole. Well, welcome to the podcast, Kimmy. Thank you so much for talking to me today. First, I'd love to start just by talking about what you do for the Democratic Party. So you're the chair of the rural Nevada Democrats. Um, what is that position? How does that work in kind of the, the state party function? What is, what's your goal? What is, uh, what is that role and, and how do you do it? The Rural Nevada Democratic Caucus entails 15 of Nevada's 17 counties. In other words, uh, it encompasses every county except for Clark and Washoe. And my passion for the rural counties really has come from that's where I have been for, you know, the last 30 plus years of my life. Even though I grew up in Reno, uh, you know, I moved to Douglas County in 1990 and really uh, there's no other way to get around it. You know, the challenges, the lifestyles, the conditions that we live in out in the rural counties are not the same as what can be experienced, say, in Las Vegas or in Reno. And the, one of the reasons that I am so passionate about doing it is all the different rural counties. They, Like I say, they have different challenges, different situations, and yet people have voices. They need to have their voices heard. They need to have their concerns met. And anything that affects somebody's ability to live a quality life is an issue that needs to be listened to. And in the past, we haven't always done it. So the Rural Caucus is, you know, we bring people together. You know, we connect any way we can to find out what are the circumstances. What do we need to hear from you in all the different counties? And that's always my goal to bring that together. And I've had, you know, some successes, but also have a fair ways to go. What challenges do you think you have reaching rural people? Obviously, there's some logistical challenges because Nevada is a pretty big state. A lot of these rural areas are pretty far flung. So what are some of the challenges of, of making those connections that you talked about and getting people in touch with each other? Well, in the past, it's had a lot to do with distance. So the distance between places kept people from getting together and just having the conversations. And subsequently, so many people in the, you know, the suburban or downright rural areas simply felt neglected and ignored. Nobody comes to see us. Nobody comes to talk to us. We don't know that we have any mechanisms for our voices to be heard. We are feeling left out. And it's been a little bit of a serendipity with uh, the pandemic. I don't want to go so I don't want to in any way uh, imply that it's been a good thing. However, it has forced us to embrace technology in a lot of ways. And truly, are there are a lot of people who are getting used to it. They're figuring out Zoom. They're figuring out how to stay connected. And our engagement around the rural counties has increased significantly over the last year because, you know, if somebody has a computer and an internet connection, uh, which many of them do, 
then we are able to communicate in ways we never could before. We are still looking at ways, what about if somebody doesn't have good internet connection or what if somebody doesn't have the technology? We also need to be cognizant of that and make sure that we, whether we do it in phone banks or you know, key people in certain areas who are willing to reach out personally in some way, shape, or form. We are still looking at ways to expand on that, but our engagement has actually increased significantly in the time of the pandemic. Hmm. On the the political end, I imagine that it's challenging dealing, you're obviously part of the Democratic Party, and most of the people, I assume, living in the rural neighborhoods are more likely to be Republicans. So I think for people involved in democratic politics in cities, a lot of times the focus is get your own voters out. So it's talk to the Democrats in your city, get your own voter turnout up. But I imagine that organizing in the rurals where there are a lot more Republicans, it creates opportunities for you to have more conversations across the aisle uh, and rather than just trying to drive you know, known democratic turnout. So what's, what's the experience like organizing not just people that are already on your side of the aisle, but kind of creating those conversations that uh, allow us to talk to people across the political spectrum. First of all, I believe in leading by setting an example. And, you know, just for example, we've had issues. And I find that even if somebody is in, in a different party, I will just tell one quick story to kind of illuminate it. We had an issue was talking about clean energy. And somebody had come into an area and they had built their dream house. They wanted to be able to look at the mountains and the beautiful view. And that had been everything that they had been dreaming for for years. And then somebody else brought, uh, bought an adjacent property and wanted to put up a big uh, wind turbine. And there was a big ruckus on that. You know, you would think, hey, uh, we worked our whole lives to have this beautiful view. And now it's going to be blocked by this huge wind turbine. So... That was a conversation I had across the aisle. There was a very innovative solution offered that said instead of building a big wind turbine, there are very low profile turbines that can be, you know, unobtrusive and non-invasive. So it wasn't opposition to generating the clean energy. It was a matter of mitigating the challenge of one person blocking the view of somebody else who had made it their lifelong goal to have this view. So, you know, those come with opening up the conversations. And so, so often we do have key issues where we have very different perspectives on things. But if we get through that initial layer of assumption, most of the people that I talk to, they'd like to have a house to live in. They'd like to have food to eat. They're looking to have a job, would like to know if there is health care, if there is an emergency or a need. Can the kids go to school? And all of these circumstances are so common that, you know, I like to look at the, you know, common areas where we can have discussions and set that lead. However, it is very difficult to open those conversations for some who have been so conditioned that anybody from a different party by way of the media has been conditioned to believe that all the other people are horrible people. And going into a conversation based on that assumption all but assures that it's not going to be a successful conversation. So those are the challenges. And then, you know, a lot of the outreach that we've done out in rural counties, I do have friends who 
have been absolutely hesitant or just refusing to get involved because if the neighbors know they're a Democrat, they're going to come after them. They're going to, you know, key their car or, and we've seen it happen, or they're going to be faced with a gun. And it's totally a different environment than to just simply say we have a difference of opinion. There are circumstances where I've known it can be downright dangerous for some people to identify them out in, you know, the very conservative counties. So we're working on that. Still, again, setting the example to say, yeah, we can have conversation. We have different points of view. Uh, We don't have to be um, disagreeable with each other to have differences of opinion. So doing our best to establish that model and maintain it. Do you think that the the difference between the national level and kind of the rhetoric and the politics and the issues that come up nationally and the state level or local level, do those affect each other in a way that makes it particularly more challenging or more of a struggle for you to have those connections? Do you feel like some of the the challenges coming head to head with people and um, and having those difficulties in even getting in conversation started, is that something that comes from the top or is it something that you see, have always seen in local and state politics? Um, kind of where's the, the switch that we need to flip or where's the, the pivot point where we can kind of make those conversations easier, do you think? I see that the challenges have been tremendously exacerbated over the last several years. You know, the bottom line, most people realize that what goes on in Washington, D.C. does not all is not a direct reflection of what goes on in any of our areas. So if they're arguing about a a bill, does it have enough votes to pass? Is there jockeying between the political parties in Congress, uh, you know, in the Senate or the House? All that jockeying at the top doesn't make any difference. You know, what is our quality of life? Do we have an availability of water? Do we have availability of natural resources? Are we going to have access to health care? And it's really developed a view of such a disconnect where what's going on in the national scene that is quite often reflected in the major media really doesn't equate to what we see going on in the rural counties. You know, I have worked for a long time, either whether I'm working with legislators or whether I'm working with people out in the rural areas uh, to say we do need to have our voices heard. We have unique and interesting challenges that aren't reflected on the national politics, and yet we do need to be engaged so that we can discuss with neighbors, so that we can discuss with our legislators. And I will put it out there, in times that I've spent in the past, doing various lobbying over the years, uh, a lot of legislators have told me that they love to hear from their constituents. They want to know what the concerns are. And so often legislation comes and goes and they have to make decisions based on very little input. So it's a matter of encouraging people to get involved. You know, for people that have the technology and have an internet connection, it's very simple to weigh in on pending legislation on the uh, Nellis website. Uh, we've done a lot of trainings. How, how do you participate? How do you make your voice heard? And that really can make a difference. You know, I think as we have talked about, the question comes up, can my voice make a difference? And a lot of the time it seems kind of hopeless. Hey, I waited on Bill. I didn't get my way. So therefore my voice didn't matter. But I have been part of it where not only did I feel strongly about something, but I had friends and I organized groups that felt the same way and we let all our voices be heard 
and we were able to pass legislation that we felt was favorable, and we've been able to stop legislation that we did not feel was favorable. So I continue to encourage people, yes, your voice does matter. We're going we're gonna to do our best to show you how to use it. Uh, so that that's seen some progress over the years. That's encouraging. I think that I tend to sometimes fall into that attitude of, oh, it doesn't really matter what I do or say, like, how many petitions can you sign? Are they really listening to me? But I think when, especially talking about the local level and the state level, it's good to hear that there is more reception to feedback from constituents and, and actually listen to those ideas. So I did some training on, on Nellis and how to track bills and things like that. And uh, I'll try to put like a link in the show notes that maybe some information about that for people who want to take a more active role in, in keeping in touch with their legislators. One of the other things that I might mention also is, depending on the legislator, you know, I will just use an example. If a legislator proposed a certain bill and it's in a certain committee, obviously you want to reach out to them. But for, you know, for all practical purposes, all the state senators have to vote on state Senate bills and all the state assemblymen have to vote on the assembly bills in general. And once everything has gone through a committee and it comes to the major body, you know, we can weigh into uh, legislators that may not be exactly our direct legislator, but it does make a difference. So the voice isn't completely contained to one option. There may be multiple options to reach with people and just let them know, you know, this is a major issue. We feel really strongly about it and we encourage support or we encourage opposition. You know, it can be a lot more impact than a lot of people give it credit for. So while we're talking about state legislation and obviously the Nevada legislature is in session right now, is there anything in particular that you've seen come up on the agenda or any existing bills that you think we should be particularly aware of or are big issues that are being addressed right now? Well, a couple that come right to my mind are the the Equality Act, uh, determining equality. And, you know, we're in a position that I hope that's going to move forward, but there has still remained some, I wouldn't even, I don't know that I'd go so far as to say uh, discriminatory language, but I can always use the term non, non-inclusive to where it's qualified. Everybody should have equality except for. And really the language that we're looking at right now is to simply clear it up that we do not have these asterisks behind certain categories that said we are really seeking equality for all except. And, you know, really just just make it across the board. The human rights, the decent treatment between human beings, that's one of the big things. And obviously, another big issue these days is what we're going to do with mining taxes. Those are top of a lot of the discussions, you know, and obviously the state of Nevada has been hit really hard with the pandemic. It's challenged the budget. There have had to been drastic cuts. So it's anybody's guess on, you know, some of this proposed legislation. Will it truly provide the solution to this shortage of money, or is that just a temporary band-aid that will tap another industry and bring some money in for now and then put us in a position to where we have to have these same conversations down the road a period of time? What's going to happen to gaming? What's going to happen to the, you know, the mining industry? The biggest thing that I've been working with with people say, None of these are really sustainable long-term solutions. They do tend to appear to be more band-aids that go from debate to debate, from struggle to struggle, 
from legislative session to legislative session. And honestly, I think if we all just step back and take a look at bigger solutions, whether it be clean energy, whether it's enhancing our education or healthcare systems, there are so many direct impactful needs that could provide more sustainable opportunities to move forward, I think, on a more healthy basis. So that that's a big conversation that I've been paying attention to, and I know a lot of others are paying attention to. You mentioned green energy, which I think for Nevada seems to make a lot of sense because we have a lot of land. It's very sunny. I've heard proposals for you know large solar farms, and that also ties in with the rural part where that is a direct benefit ideally for rural communities. Obviously, you're not building big solar farms in the cities, so you need the land space for that. Do you think that green energy is uh, a potential you know, big industry for Nevada? I, I personally do because I know a number of people that are completely self-sustainable. You know, they have the solar panels either, you know, on the roofs of their homes, on the patio covers, on their awnings that cover their gardens or whatever, and it generates all the electricity they need with very, very few exceptions. You know, and a lot of people look at it very simply and say, okay, we've got all these solar panels, and what if the sun isn't shining? And it's like, okay, that just rules it out. If we have a cloudy day, you're, you're out of luck. And, you know, the bottom line is, hey, there's storage. You know, you can accumulate and you can store up the energy. You see that all the time where you will see a lighted road sign that displays the speed limit or whatever they do, and you'll see these tiny little solar panels on them that are up there. They store up the energy in the batteries so that this uh, mechanism can work on a regular full-time basis. So we, we lose the conversation a lot of the time to that immediacy of thinking, okay, if the sun's not shining, we got no power. And in so many cases, that there are ways that that doesn't have to be true and people can still be self-sufficient. They can, you know, they can still turn on their lights and their appliances and everything else and go on about business. A lot of the time what we're working on is just getting full information out about any given subject. What does it mean? What are the effects? What are the impacts? What are the challenges? And what can we do to make this work instead of just summarily dismissing because I heard somewhere on the news that that's a bad thing. There's so much more to life than that. You brought up the Equality Act, and Nevada has kind of an interesting history with LGBTQ rights and acceptance. You know, we put into our constitution a gay marriage ban, and then I think there's a process of removing that now. Is that what the Equality Act does, or is that a separate piece of legislation? Do you know? The, the Equality Act is, a, is an overarching view, to my understanding. Nationally, legislation said gay marriage is fine national acceptance, but a lot of the time, like what we see in Nevada, there's still there's still wording in their constitution that still includes those except. But it's easy to think, well, our work is done. We've got marriage equality. Everybody's happy about it. We're no longer spending our time and effort on it. But if anything were to happen to that national coverage and language like this is still ensconced in the state constitution, it could come back and change things back to a time when things weren't so equal. I've been watching the Equality Act. I haven't been watching the marriage wording specifically, but that was that's my understanding of what we're doing or what's going on. Do you think that there is a a cultural challenge in connecting with people in the rurals when so many of the national issues tend to be these kind of culture war issues? So 
as I've always lived in cities, so I've always felt pretty comfortable as a gay man in the cities that I lived in. I lived in the Bay Area. I've never lived in the rurals, but I have this automatic kind of like, oh, that might be kind of a scary place for me. So so what's your experience been working in the rurals and kind of addressing the the cultural issues and kind of the those bigger conflicts and things that people might not be familiar with or understand? Well, I had a real eye-opening situation last summer. Through a mutual connection, I encountered an individual that works with the CDC out of Atlanta, and they'd done some studies. And, you know, he asked, what kind of data do we have? What do we know about people that identify on the LGBTQ spectrum in, in rural areas? And I said, uh, I said, well, I want to talk more about this. I want to find out what you know. And the studies came back just based on the numbers, based on polls that they had, based on interviews that they'd had. And the projection is well over 12,000 people in rural Nevada who identify somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum. And my first instinct was like a lot of people's instincts, like, oh my goodness, how could there possibly be that many within this constituency? And then I got to thinking, oh my goodness, I know them and I know them and I know them and I know them and I know this group. And oh my goodness, it's not that hard to see the numbers. But unfortunately, I know too many people who live in the very rural counties who live in a fearful privacy. There is this fear how, and it's not, this doesn't really have to do with necessarily directly with the laws. This has to do with public perception. This has to do with education and accurate information to where somebody says, how can I live authentically as myself without risking losing my job, without risking you know, losing where I live or losing family relationships or being treated poorly if I have to go to the hospital. And these fears keep people from living openly who they are out in the rural counties. It's absolutely a horrible, uh, for lack of better words, it's a horrible closet to live in. I was there for a number of years. And by the time I finally got out of the closet, I figured, well, I feel pretty good being out of the closet. I don't want to go back into it. But now the efforts and the passions that I see is anything that I can do to help other people find some light outside those closets to where they can just go on about their lives. And again, we get back to the Equality Act. What does it matter what somebody does in private or they, uh, you know, they go somewhere and are holding somebody's hand? It's just that kind of discrimination isn't really based on fact. It's based on perception. And yet it is so hurtful and at times incredibly damaging. We're, we're just looking at education and outreach, bringing accurate information that will inform people to make better choices. You brought up earlier the Zoom and kind of connecting through technology with people in the rurals. And I know that last year during the Democratic caucuses, we had the uh, the rural town halls. So you invited all the presidential candidates to connect with rural voters, both here in Nevada and I guess across the country too. Can you talk a little bit about where that where that started? Because it was pre-pandemic, but obviously the timing was great because you were ahead of the curve a little bit on getting everyone on Zoom. So can you tell me a little bit about how that started and, and how it worked and whether it was successful and if you see it as a good model going forward? Well, first of all, I have to confess, I don't know, it was all that visionary. It was just this feeling like we wanted to be represented and we want our voices to be heard. 
So it started with a couple of the statewide candidates in 2018, and forever we had heard from statewide candidates and national candidates, we'd say, hey, come visit us. And we're in an outlying rural county, and I heard the same response regularly. Well, you know, we got to buy a plane ticket, so there's the expense, and there's this time out of our schedule, and this, and, 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 and we didn't get very many opportunities to see the top candidates. I don't remember which candidate it was, but they were running for state office in 2018, and they gave me that same response, and I just said, you know what, I don't buy it. I understand the logistics and the expensive and all that kind of stuff, but I said, if you are running for a statewide position saying you want to represent me and you can't find a laptop and an internet connection to talk to us for 30 minutes, we got a problem here. We just started it and did some experimenting. We were still working with Skype, which didn't lend itself quite as user-friendly a platform. But based on that, in 2019, when the presidential campaigns were really starting to heat up, several of the top candidates were reaching out to statewide leaders, and I got calls from several of them. You know, one of the first ones, still one of my favorites, was with Elizabeth Warren. She said, well, you know, we got to buy a plane ticket and the expense and logistics and blah. And I used the same response. If you're running to lead the country and you can't find a laptop and a internet connection to talk to us for 30 minutes, and it didn't take but a split second, she said, count me in. She was one of the very first ones to raise her hand, and then that was really promptly followed by so many of the other top candidates. I mean, we had, you know, Cory Booker was one of the first. We had Beto O'Rourke. We had Kamala Harris. And without my list in front of me, I would have to say we had all but maybe just one or two of the top candidates who either joined us on a virtual town hall or visited us in person or both. And that makes all the difference in the world as compared to sitting in on, you know, just a virtual town hall or something that they do where nobody gets to interact, where there's a thousand people on the call, they hear the voices, and it's the same things that we experience over and over again. But what we were able to do was to bring the reality into our offices and our libraries and even, you know, our living rooms at times where we could gather and we could see the candidates in real time. And there's a huge difference between hearing somebody reading off a planned answer to spur of the moment answers where we can see their facial expressions, where we can see their body language, where we can truly have an interaction. And it opened up opportunities like, you know, it was just absolutely amazing. And I think that kind of set the foundation for people to feel it's okay to meet by Zoom. And now we're doing that. It's not as good. Obviously, many of us are missing the hugs that we used to enjoy when we were getting together in person. But we still have that connectedness of being able to see who we're talking to and get a bigger feel for the interaction instead of just hearing the voice on the other end of a phone line. So it, 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 did, set a, it did set a precedent that we've used effectively moving forward. That's good. Another thing that you were part of during the primaries that I really appreciated was this uh, ranked choice during the early caucuses. So for listeners who don't really know that much about different voting systems, ranked choice basically is instead of voting for one person, you get to rank the candidates in your order of preference. And instead of whoever has the most votes wins, if no one is over 50%, whoever has the lowest votes basically gets kicked off the ballot and 
their second choice, your you know, if you're a voter for that person, your second choice then kind of goes into effect. So I'm of the opinion that that is better because it lets voters have more of a say rather than just, oh, this is a person I approve of. They get to say, oh, this is how much I like this person. This is how much I really don't like this person if they're at the end of my list. And it gives them a, a stronger voice generally. So can you talk a little bit about the process of including that in the caucuses and whether that's something you see as a good model going forward. I know Alaska just did some election reforms that also include uh, open primaries where the primaries don't have a specific party that basically everyone can vote in the primaries and then the top four go on to the general election. So can you just talk a little bit about democratic reforms like that and how you think they might encourage rural voters to feel more included in the process or, or just generally give us a, a better voice through changing the way that we vote? Well, there are some key challenges in the current situation where it's narrowed down to only two parties. Everything's set up right now that, you know, in a lot of these, a lot of these races, if somebody gets 50% plus one in the primary and they're from an opposite party than the minority in a community, they can just be elected right in the primary with nobody even having a chance to weigh in. That's one issue that we've run into. There's even been attempts to mitigate that. But after the legislation that put that into place in the first place, and they came back, let's fix this. This is unfair to somebody. Obviously, we run into situations that were majority Republican, and they said, no, we like protecting the power that we have here. We're not interested in revising it. Same thing. There were Democratic strongholds said the same thing. We like protecting our power, and no, we don't want to change this. The other key thing that we've looked at when we have multiple people running in a race Uh, A lot of the time, we don't pay attention to the fact that somebody can get elected. Let's say we have five or six candidates all in a race, and we just have the vote, we narrow it down, and somebody wins. Well, it's easy to look at saying, okay, they're the winner, they must be the best candidate for this area. But the bottom line is, is we've seen people win races where there were multiple candidates for the position to win with as low as, you know, maybe... 20 or 25 percent of the vote to to look at, say, somebody that was only elected by a very low percentage of the people in this area, that's not representing everybody. And the other thing that we are seeing is over the years, there's been somewhat of an exodus from the major political parties, which is the GOP and the Democrats. And we see the numbers in so many areas going down. The voter voter share goes down and down and down. But what keeps going up and up is the nonpartisan registrations. And I still look at this. uh, My perspective is people got tired of the two-party system. They were getting somewhat disenfranchised and disaffected, but they don't want to disengage from the process. So they will change from a major party to nonpartisan. And then we run into the challenge of people who do end up registering as nonpartisan that they do not have a voice in the primary. So effectively, their voices are shut out by the time everybody has gone through the preliminary choices in the primary. We've narrowed it down to a couple candidates. The nonpartisans finally have a chance to weigh in in the general, but they don't have a chance to weigh in with their voices coming up, leading up to getting through the primary and narrowing it down to a couple couple options. So the rank voting, I've heard it, uh, you know, rank voting, instant runoff, we've heard a lot of other terms, 
It simply makes it fair and it holds elected officials accountable to the point where we, you know, we start it. We have the first round of voting as, like you say, the person with the least amount of votes drops off and then their second choice votes move up into the remaining candidates and it goes until you have a clear majority winner. And we feel that that is fair. You know, if people are interested in fairness rather than maintaining one party uh, power structure or another, then you sort it out, sort it out, sort it out until somebody with a very clear majority wins. And for the most part, I think that's going to be the fairest representation of people when we get there. And one of the other things that I've encountered is there is a lot of different information about what ranked choice voting is or ranked voting. You know, a lot of people just look at it on the surface and say, I don't understand that. I don't want to have anything to do with it because it's different. Right at first, I'll admit I had some questions and concerns about because I didn't completely understand it. But I did look around and did some research and I found multiple points of information and multiple references that simplified it tremendously. A quick little minute and a half video. Here's how it works. Oh my goodness, that is clear as a bell and it is incredibly simple. And then we looked at it, you know, whatever they decided to call it or not call it in the uh, early voting in Nevada, we did find that everybody had up to five options out of a field of, I don't know, we were probably down to maybe 12 or 13 candidates by then. In other words, it was a big field, but people weren't forced to narrow it down to one or two people to get to choice. If you didn't get your first choice, maybe you get your second choice. If you didn't get your second choice, maybe you got your third choice. In other words, it tremendously increased the chances of somebody being able to stand behind and support somebody that they truly believed in supporting. Do you think that it also increases voter participation when people know that their voice is going to matter a little bit more? Because I imagine that a lot of voters in the minority party, whether you're you know, a Republican in Las Vegas or you're a Democrat in one of the rural counties, I imagine that with the current system, the incentive to vote is very low because you kind of already know the result. But if you have more candidates on the ballot and more variety of choices and you're able to put them in order, do you think that is an incentive that would get people to vote that otherwise might be like, eh, it's like, it doesn't matter? Well, I would, you know, I would certainly hope so. <laughs> Excuse me. And that's the plan. Now, if we look at, we go back to the scenario where somebody with very low percentage of overall support still ends up winning the seat. You know, they can't represent everybody. You know, if people looked at it and figured, I've got a really good chance of putting somebody in this office who is supported by the most people, then that would seem more fair and seem like an enhancement that would encourage people to participate. That's what we're looking at. How do you feel about the Electoral College? I'm a generally very anti-Electoral College. I think that, you know, the people should elect the president by a majority vote. But I know it's a big issue, especially in rural communities, where they feel like if there was no Electoral College, this is more of a national issue than a state issue. But if there was no Electoral College, then the cities would always make all the decisions. And they see structures like the Electoral College as a protection for a minority, which the rurals are a minority in our state. So how do you feel about ideas to eliminate things like the Electoral College, which would obviously tilt the power in favor of cities, 
while you're more representing the rural communities? Well, I think it's a very antiquated system to begin with. You know, we really need to look, relook at things. Life is an ever-evolving dynamic, and some of these practices, like the Electoral College that were eliminated, uh, put into play many, many, many years ago. You know, everything that I've read, the Electoral College was originally implemented to protect slavery. That was the background, uh, the way of life that uh, people wanted to protect, and we've gone so far from that. But I think one of the biggest eye-openers is, I think it was just reading last night, and I think it was in the last 20 years, there have been a number of presidents that were elected by the Electoral College that did not get the majority of votes in the United States, which meant we had representation at the very top of the political ticket that was not favored by the majority of people. And I I look at that, uh, you know, we've gotten to the point we can weigh it, you know, to the cities versus the uh, urban areas, but it doesn't always play out that way. It's not always guaranteed that the cities just get their way and everybody else gets left out because we've had almost like I would see kind of a reverse discrimination on that point to where somebody who really didn't get the support of the most people still ends up being in a governing position. And that's happened too many times. So personally, I really think the Electoral College is antiquated and, you know, it's time to move over for something, you know, it's more fair and decent. And I also look at processes like the Electoral College that were implemented many, many years ago, for example, when the population of the country was, say, 50 million or, uh, you know, a number like that. And now we're talking about 350 million approximately. You can't equate process that was put into place when it was 50 million and say it's still going to be fair, fair and equitable now when we have 350 million, give or take. And that's where that's where the government comes in. We have different demographics. We have different geographical areas. We have different natural resources. We have different climates. There are so many differences that need to be mitigated that we cannot do it on antiquated, outdated processes that don't give the most people the chance to, you know, to weigh in and be represented. Have you found that those are issues that rural voters have asked you about or that care about? I mean, you mentioned that there's some common issues that everyone has in common, like everyone wants a a place to live and and healthcare and ability to have a job and all of these things that kind of cut across all the political spectrum. I think that there seems to be a focus in recent years on democratic reforms and and access to voting. And then obviously in this last you know few months, that's been a big issue on the right is this kind of pushback against mail-in voting and against um, you know expanding voting locations. And the the structure of our democracy and the access to the ballot has become a big, pretty divisive issue. What are you finding that conversation to be like? with folks in rural Nevada? Well, I step back a little bit from that one. And the overarching view that I have is if more participation is a bad thing to protect political power, then protecting that political power maybe isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And, you know, just for example, there there are numerous states that have uh, had all mail-in balloting for years. And, you know, the fact is very, very few limited issues. It was never a problem until it became a political issue based on the based on the pandemic. And I look at it and all of a sudden we had a situation that we had to demonize the post office. 
and we think about what does the post office do? Well, if it's all about mailing and opening the door for more people to participate in the vote and they capture that and say, this is why it's bad because we don't like it. What about the people that rely on the mail for their prescriptions? What about people that rely on the mail for their major correspondence, like communicating with their doctors, communicating about their identification and getting all these things done if they're not completely mobile? And that was very hurtful in what, you know, a lot of the progress that we made to demonize the post office and say it's a bad thing. We don't want people to do this. And again, I I get back to it on the other hand and say, if more participate, if more people participating becomes a bad thing, then I have a real problem with that. Plus, what we see, and I run into an election cycle after election cycle after election cycle, people who are still of sound mind, who inform themselves, they are informed voters, they want to participate, they want their voices to be heard, but they are confined to a wheelchair, or they do not have the ability to drive. There are these things that keep people who are otherwise completely capable from participating in the process. And mail-in voting has allowed them for many years to participate in the process. And to look at that for, you know, for a long time, it's been an option to request a mail-in ballot. You know, that was fine, but you had to do it repeatedly. If you're under 65, you had to request it for special circumstances time after time after time. And then we had the pandemic. Why would you subject anybody say they have a compromised immune system or it is tremendously difficult physically to get around or they don't have access to immediate transportation to say, you know what, we're just going to cut you out of the process. And again, a lot of that has to do with the urban versus rural thinking. You look at somebody that's somewhat incapacitated or something, it's easy in a lot of the metro areas to say, well, you know, just go to the corner and catch a bus. And we have to think about that. And you get out of the rural areas, the buses don't run that frequently. They don't stop at a corner on a regular basis that's within a block of somebody's home. It's an entirely different situation. So everything that we look at in uh, rural areas is we want more participation. We want more people's voices to be heard. And this is just another avenue to allow those voices to be heard. So, you know, the mail-in balloting, anything that can increase participation, I'm all in favor of. Yeah, I was discouraged at some of the anti-post office attitudes and rhetoric recent years because I do think that our post offices exist everywhere, including in rural communities. And the access to the ballot through mail-in voting, and then also there's proposals for things like postal banking so that people, if they don't have a, you know, a, a large national bank, can still get a checking account and cash checks and do basic banking functions that we have this infrastructure tool of the post office that spans urban and rural America across the entire country that is potentially being underutilized and could be used in a way to include people in the economy and services and voting across the board in a better way. So it's pretty discouraging when the post office is kind of under attack when I think that there's great potential for it to be kind of a uniting force, um, across you know the entire country in both urban and rural areas. I, I think we need to be informed by history and we can break it down really simple. After all the challenges presented by the pandemic, after all the misinformation and disinformation about what mail-in voting was, what it was not, about the U.S. Postal Service, to get through the elections 
and to have this incredibly intense scrutiny from all around the state and all around the country saying, we don't trust it, we don't trust it, we have to check it, we have to analyze it, we've done all that. And just kudos to, I think, I think kudos to our Secretary of State's office that stepped up to these challenges. I have had conversations with them, and they really made everything work amazingly successfully. We did not have any widespread fraud whatsoever. Sure, there were little issues, but, you know, when you have you know, a million and a half or a couple million people voting and say, we had a person over here that did it wrong. That's not an argument to stop a complete process. You had an issue, you fixed the issue, you, you know, maybe prosecuted somebody to stop that from future practice. You don't take one issue or two or three issues out of a couple million and say, this is the reason we have a problem. That's just not logical thinking in my mind. Yeah, I would agree. I think that generally measures that increase voter access and let more people vote are an increased turnout may have the potential that there's going to be more mistakes or an accidental extra ballot was mailed to someone who's on the list twice or or any of these things that are kind of brought up and presented as major issues when really what these changes to voting do is they get many more people voting. So even if there is, again, these kind of isolated incidents, the trade-off for them seems to be a lot more legitimate, you know, actual legal voters getting to cast their ballot when they might not otherwise. And I do remember I got a little bit of media information. People share their news and their updates with me. And I really couldn't believe that I read this, but it was it was against mail-in voting. And the logic presented in this piece was mail-in voting is horrible. It opens up the door to widespread fraud. It's not going to be representative of the people. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. And then the conclusion in this piece was, we actually have two instances where people did it wrong. Two instances in, you know, the million plus, million and a half people that voted in Nevada, they're using that as an argument. We had two instances where people did it wrong. So therefore, we've got a problem with this situation. I just don't buy it. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's uh, it's unfortunate that I think there are people who would rather see fewer people vote if that's the way to win seats or to win elections then actually engage more of the population. And uh, sometimes that means shifting your political views to appeal to a broader audience. And I think that that's one of the challenges that we face, largely with the two-party system as well, is that there um, are some incentives, like you mentioned with the primaries, to go to the furthest end of the spectrum to win your primary, and then you're not really representing a broad range of the people. So what what are your thoughts on that and kind of, the challenges of the the two-party system driving us to polarized views and how do we fix how do we fix that or how do we address that to find representatives or elected officials who cover not necessarily everyone but have a, a broader constituency than just the extreme end of their own party well one of the things that i look at if you know i did talk to a legislator several years ago and we actually get along pretty well we don't agree on much but we get along pretty well. And, you know, there's the comment that was made, well, legislators would actually have a really easy time if they would simply listen to their constituents. 
But unfortunately, we've gotten so polarized that whether somebody's a Democrat or whether they're with the Republicans and all of their constituents are of a like mind, obviously the input that they get is not really productive and it's not representative of the overall picture. So I, I lean towards greater engagement. You know, I would like to, in, uh, I would really like to encourage more people to interact with their legislators, even if they're of a different party. Let them know what's on your mind. And so often that information can be used very effectively. And a lot of legislators are actually open to hearing that input. But, you know, so often, like I say, I've known people that say one of their biggest problems legislating is they just simply do not hear from their constituents out of the, I don't know how many hundreds of, pieces of pending legislation there are this current session. I haven't looked at that for a while. But let's say you have six or eight or 900 bills or whatever like that. There are key pieces of legislation that are getting all the attention in the media. So whether they're talking the Equality Act or what we're going to do with the mining taxes or any of these things that really get the prominent attention in the media, that's what people are paying attention to. And, you know, maybe there's a dozen bills on that line and then there's another six or eight or 900 bills that just don't get the attention that there's never any feedback on. So, you know, I look, I said, you know, if you want to consider yourself informed, you got to get informed and a lot of time as leaders, we do our best to bring the information, bring good speakers that are knowledgeable on key issues to let people make informed choices on as many subjects as possible, every chance possible. That remains a goal that we have reaching out to people. We're going to keep doing the best we can. Uh, what, what do you do? What tools do you use to, to reach out to people? I mean, obviously, it's not election season right now. So there's less of the candidate town halls and these, uh, you know, regular meetings, obviously, because there's a pandemic. So what are the strategies that you use to regularly reach voters? It's a combination effort. And a lot of the time we will look at, it, for example, if there's a county that doesn't have any direct representation recognized, for example, by our state party. Then what we were doing last year is we will get people who are willing to make phone calls. We will go through the contact list. First of all, we will want to find out, how are you doing? And do you want to be involved? Do you want to get information? And then we uncover what are the challenges? Well, you know, I don't have a computer. The internet connection is spotty. We don't have those things. Well, would you like to be involved if we didn't have those challenges? And we're seeking somebody who lives in an area who is knowledgeable enough to communicate with us. Here's what we're facing in our area. And I will say I wear this with a sense of pride. The first time since I've been involved in the political realm this last year, we had representation from every single one of the 15 rural counties. And we also found that shackling somebody with the designation as the chair or the lead person, you know, there's this perception, well, I don't want to put myself out there that everybody with a question can just call me any time of day or night. I understand that. You know, we had a little bit of a different approach. Say, we want to hear your voice. If we don't have to shackle you with, you know, a direct title or anything like that, how about doing the work that you feel so passionately about doing? So sure. Yeah, we'll do that. That's what we believe in. We want to talk to our neighbors. We want to do all those things. And all of a sudden we had representation. Uh, we find that we have to deal, we have to do things differently in rural areas. 
when you get in an urban area and you have large numbers of people, uh, large numbers of choices, multiple candidates in both parties for many of the offices, it is an entirely different perspective than what we see in some of the rural areas. We may not even have a choice in our party this time, but we want to have some impact. And the other thing that is really key, regardless of what people's backgrounds are, is I always encourage people, it is about numbers. And if there's an issue that concerns us in a specific area, and one person says, I think this idea is good, or I think this idea is bad, that's one thing. But if you have 10 or 15 or 20 or 50 people all standing together and say, we think this is a good idea or a bad idea, then that's going to get some attention and help some movement. And a lot of the time, our effectiveness is how well can we do organize. You know, if I feel strongly about something and I have a friend that feels strongly about something and we want to do something about it, can we get another 20 or 40 or 100 of our friends together to weigh in on this, to, you know, send a letter, weigh in on Nellis? You know, I I am looking at that to get more more voices involved, more perspectives involved, and more people just feeling like their, their, their human value is there that is recognized by potential legislators. So that's always an ongoing goal. What has been your path into politics? Have you always been interested in politics or how long have you been doing uh, political work and and what brought you into it? So um, I'm not a longtime political junkie. I'll say that. I have voted every year since I turned 18, which was in 1972. And over the years, I was one of these uh, one of these people I would have hated at the time because I didn't pay that close of attention. I didn't consider myself an informed participant. But after all those years, uh, a lot of people know my story. About 11 years ago, after you know a long period in my life of things not fitting, I went through a gender transition, and uh, I thought, my goodness, you know, now in my 50s, I can finally live, you know, live openly and authentically, and that was a really big deal for me. And all of a sudden, I figured I can't go into the places the way I used to and just take it for granted where people are looking at me, giving that suspicious eye and, you know, steering clear in the store and things like that. And that was a really real eye opener for me. And it occurred to me at the time. So this is what it must feel like if somebody is singled out for being different. And it could be the language they speak, the color of their skin, uh, however they view, view life, where they live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, I do not like this. And for anybody to have to put up with this, I do not like this and I want to do something about it. So at that point, I could not be silent anymore. I did some research as far as my core values, how I aligned the most closely and I always kind of joke about it. doesn't everybody thoroughly read all the uh, party major party platforms before they make a decision how they vote. And that's really ob- obviously not the case. But I read them all and I said none of them are perfect. None of them are completely, totally exactly how I feel. But I'm the closest with what I see on the Democrats. And that was when I had my eye opening experience that we were so heavily outnumbered. I became even less favorable. I became another minority just for simply registering as a Democrat. But I thought, I believe there are solutions in the political realm. I want to learn more about the, the, the functions, about how things work. And for a period of time, actually for a couple of years, I was one of these probably strange people by many standards where I would go to presentations and meetings and topical issues. And I would raise my hand and I'd say, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? What can I do to help? 
And, you know, for the longest time, I was just this tall blonde with a deep voice and people had not really take me all that seriously. And then finally, one organization, they, they were doing some organizing. They wanted some help, phone banking and canvassing. And I said, I, I'd like to help. And they said, good, we'll call you. And they did. And then I went to work and they found that I did have some organizational abilities. I had direct knowledge of the area geographically because of many years spent overseeing construction projects. So I knew the lay of the land uh, and I had these organizing abilities and I found that we could start getting things done. So that is really what changed my mind when I convince myself I need to be informed if I got to make good choices and I need to stand up and do what I say I believe in. I've never believed in looking at these challenges and say somebody else needs to fix that, but don't count me in. I'm just the opposite. Somebody else needs to fix that. In the first place, I look in the mirror and say, you know, Kimmy, if you really feel passionate about it, uh, you want to do something about it, you got to practice what you preach and get involved. So one thing, one thing led to another. We had some successes, and I never would have envisioned this. 15 years ago, if you told me what I was doing now would be what I'm doing, I never would have believed you. From those original involvements, meeting the coolest people in the world, you know, with different backgrounds and learning what lives are like for people living in different circumstances has been so gratifying, so rewarding. You know, I just kept getting more and more involved. I kept raising my hand, showing up for events and presentations and meeting with legislators and finding out what it's all about. And I will say, interestingly enough, for so many years, I would drive by the legislative building in Carson City and I always kind of looked at it from, well, that's that mysterious place where those mysterious people go and do mysterious things. And it was kind of almost foreboding who would want to go into that building like there was, you know, something scary about it. And honest to goodness, when I really started getting involved and I got, uh, you know, I went up there and I actually lobbied on some legislation and I started meeting legislators, I found out real quickly, these are people doing a job. No more, no less. They're real human beings. They have their strengths. They have their flaws. And all of a sudden that building was no longer intimidating. And the idea that somebody was an elected legislator was no longer intimidating. In fact, I found them to be some of the most open, engaging people I've ever talked to. Even when we had we didn't agree on a subject or a topic, we could have a conversation that was civilized and even say, well, we see it differently. However, when you're opening conversations like that, quite often you get to a point, you know what, I learned something by talking to them. Or they will admit they learned something by talking to me. It, in, it, it improved both of our lives as far as our understanding, you know, and our knowledge. So it's been, been about a 12-year whirlwind, you know, that I came from absolute nothing to getting involved here and there to, you know, it, it, it still kind of surprises me when candidates for top offices, whether it be in the state or the nationally, feel like it's worth calling me and asking me what my opinions are and what's going on in my area. I never would have believed it, but that's kind of my story. That's fantastic. That's It's great to hear that you were able to find the the comfort in talking to people in the legislature. And, and I have the same kind of sense that you did, that it's feels sometimes inaccessible and I don't know what I'm doing and I may have a political view, but it's informed by, you know, like national narratives and I don't really know necessarily how it applies to the state and who do I talk to. And it all seems kind of challenging and far away. So it's encouraging to hear that really it's just a matter of, of starting those conversations and 
talking to people, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, one of the things we always say, the unknown is always scary. And a lot of the time, me me included, I will look some, I, I don't know that situation. I don't know that person. I don't know if they'd listen to me. This is a scary thing. Maybe I don't want to do it. But then I find out, I get to the other side, and just an introductory introduction and a short conversation. I wow, that wasn't so scary. And, you know, it's gotten to be the point where I made so many friends and gotten to know so many people that were just barely on that other side of the unknown and opening up a conversation. I think I know it improved my life, uh, enhanced my life, and I'm sure it has with a lot of others. So taking that first step is often the biggest and often the scariest. And another thing that I concentrate on is living by example, encouraging people. They don't want to do it on their own. Hey, come with me. You know, I'll go with you just to get started. And, you know, I've had a lot of people get involved and move into leadership positions, which I'm thrilled about. And we're going to continue doing that. And by the time, you know, uh, we just never can invalidate the value of the human spirit. And I've had so many situations where somebody feel like they were either uh, neglected or ignored. And that's a very lonely place to be. And I've seen situations where it turned around and people said, hey, somebody does care. Hey, somebody is paying attention. Hey, maybe there is something that I can do. And to see the brightening up of people in their their demeanors and their feelings and their enthusiasm for life. Every chance, uh, you know, every chance I can participate in an activity that uh, illuminates the world for somebody else, that makes every day worth getting out of bad period. Yeah, that's one of my hopes for this podcast is that it'll give me an excuse and an opportunity to have a lot of conversations with people that I might not know that much about, that I might not be that familiar with what they do. And being able to kind of force myself into an in-depth conversation where I can really learn a lot with people that are not just necessarily political figures, but people that are doing anything interesting or important or impactful uh, in Northern Nevada. So I'm wondering for a, a podcast like this, what kind of guests do you think would be good? Who should I talk to? Not necessarily individuals, but if this is going to be an ongoing series of me talking to people every week, what kind of people do you think people would want to hear from? What kind of conversations do you think are important? Uh, where should I, you know, where should I put some focus? Well, I always believe that if there are subjects of uh, current topical interest and we can find an authority on that to speak to it, I know a lot of the people that I appreciate listening to you know, they're, they're not completely focused on one side of an issue or any other side of the issue. I always look for people who are willing to deliver the pros and the cons. What would be the benefits that we could see from such legislation? Or what are the negatives from an economic impact? Is it really good? I always look at issues, you know, anybody's looking at how can we do the most good for the most people? And I have met some incredible people, for example, friend of mine works with Moms Demand Action for the gun safety and everything. And a lot of people that are uninformed kind of tend to look at that and say, oh, they want to come take away our guns. And one of the talking points that they have is we want to engage gun owners. We want to know their perspectives. We want people to, you know, to be able to target practice and hunt and do the responsible things. So there's all these uh, misnomers that have turned it into something it's not. We just don't want our kids to get shot in schools. It's that simple. 
Uh, they don't want to take away people's guns. So, you know, if we if we inform and educate and people have a better awareness of what actually is going on, what does this legislation and this action mean, then people feel better about their environments. We ran into the same thing with Black Lives Matter. And, uh, you know, I know people that have been involved. First of all, it's, it's not a structured national organization that does any one thing. And for most of the people that I know, including myself, it was very simple. We don't want to be uh, we don't want to see people singled out for the color of their skin and being mistreated simply for that reason. Let's be fair. Let's be equitable towards people. And the media just hyped it up as, oh, my goodness, they're this and they're this. And they made up all these terrible, scary things. And it prompted this fear. And we have confrontations that actually did. They either turned dangerous or were right near turning dangerous. It was just all manufactured. I do my best to instruct and inform and uh, get a variety of different subjects, especially uh, topical ones. I'd always be interested and willing to help with introductions. And I think as it gets started, one of the things that I would say is even open it up to the public. If you have some outreach, I know with the Facebook page or you get to the point where you have a website, what would you like to hear about? Who would you like to talk to? And most of the people that I know are in a legislative position or in a position of managing a large entity or something. They're really happy. They are anxious to inform and educate the public. And, you know, I used to just reach out and say, hey, we don't know about this. Will you talk to our group? Sure. Welcome us in. We do that all the time. So you got to start somewhere. And, you know, if you want to build an audience, reach out and find out what is on people's minds. Yeah, that's my hope is that I can have a lot of conversations across a wide range. And the challenge is that I'm very interested in politics. So I imagine that the struggle is going to be finding guests outside of my own circle and making sure that I am broadening my horizons and not just talking to Democrats and people involved in democratic politics. I want to be able to have conversations, not necessarily, you know, debates across the aisle, but you mentioned guns. And that's something I'm very curious about because Nevada obviously has a big gun culture and that is a big national issue. So conversations like that, I think, could probably be really valuable both for me to learn more the perspective of people who are more pro-gun than I am and and how that relates to, you know, what's going on in our city and our state and uh, and how it affects people's lives. Because obviously people's experience with guns is completely different based on where they're from or what experiences they've had around guns, whether it's they see guns as part of their their sporting and hunting life or someone who's been a victim or knows a victim of gun violence, they have completely different views of of what guns mean. So being able to have some of those conversations with people with different perspectives, I hope will be, you know, enlightening and informative. So uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. What else? Uh, what have I missed? And what else do you want people to know? I think we've 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 covered a lot of ground for a starting conversation. The only other thing that we didn't touch on that I really had on my mind that I wanted to bring up, if we have been accustomed and conditioned to think a certain way and act certain ways, and we find out that those ways of acting and being are no longer viable, in other words, it doesn't work anymore, then I look at ways, can we get outside of that box? If it's not working what we're doing, let's find something that does work. Let's have a conversation, you know, to develop this and 
find out a better way to do it. There's always a better mousetrap waiting around the corner. Just because what we had worked for years, it may have quit working. We don't do that anymore. We have to be open to that curious thinking about moving into the future. And the other thing that I, uh, a number of people have talked to me about, okay, we've had the pandemic and that has closed us in. That has kept us from uh, meeting with people in person. And, oh, we would love to be able to get together with our friends and family on a more open basis. And we'd love to share the hugs and all that. Yeah, we want that too. However, I think we have learned enough that I am looking at hybrid means of communications. In other words, yes, we want to get together. We want to see our friends. We want to do all those things. But there are some times when there is either a distance or a time factor that keeps things from happening. And I envision kind of a hybrid model that says, let's incorporate getting together in person when we we can do it safely and confidently, but let's not turn our backs on the notion of getting together, you know, and accomplishing something uh, virtually. Let's get on a Zoom conference. And I think one of the best examples that I can think of is geographically in the rural areas were really spread out. And we would have some really good informational meetings, whether it was on a current topic of interest or a key race or something like that. And it was real easy to figure somebody, they get home from a day's work, they come in somewhat tired at five o'clock, and then they have to change their clothes, get in their car, drive to a place, and they have a meeting, and then they have to drive home. And that may have taken two or three hours out of an already busy, tiring schedule where we can accomplish that and say, okay, you got home from work at five, let's give you time for dinner. Let's have this conference between six and seven. You'll get all your information. You don't have to drive home after that. So it doesn't add three three hours, two or three hours to an already long day. It adds an hour of information. So I think the model that I would be looking for, and I hope more people embrace is say, let's do it all. Let's figure out the best way. Let's get together. Let's incorporate in-person meetings that we're missing so much, but let's also look at the other possibilities as far as good ways to effectively communicate. So those were the only other two things that I had on my list for the moment. It's not that I don't have more things on my mind, but I think your podcast can't go for weeks and months at a time. <laughs> that's that's the challenge. Is the, <laughs> my hope for these these episodes is that I can have conversations that are that are long enough that we get to cover a variety of topics and delve into stuff. I know a lot of times in the the podcast format, it's it's abbreviated. A lot of people are in a hurry; they don't necessarily want to listen for hours and hours of time. There are some podcasts that are successful, kind of these long hours long, um, kind of rambling, weaving conversations. And there's an audience for that. But uh, I'm hoping to find that kind of sweet spot where it's long enough to be a interesting, engaging conversation, but still short enough that people can consume an entire episode in one sitting. And I've, I've got I've got some suggestions that I'll pass along. You can scrutinize and find out if they'd be interested in the format. You know, I can give you good recommendations. So, you know, I want to see this communication as format take off for a lot of reasons. I like what you said about using the tools of communication for, you know, having that as one of the tools in the toolbox. So meeting a person, but still using technology. One of the things that I think about a lot is how we use things like technology and social media, whether we're using them for good and better conversation and more connection, or we're using them to avoid real conversation and degrading our relationships. So my hope for this podcast and this format of podcast in particular is that it can 
use the tools of things like Zoom and social media and online connection, but just as a tool to foster actual conversation and a better connection. And hopefully if it works, um, it'll be really effective for not just me to be able to connect with more people, but hopefully people that are listening can kind of feel that connection and, and get something from these conversations as well. There's one way to find out. Right. Just got to do it. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Kimmy. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Connor. Uh, we'll talk soon and uh, we'll go from there. Thanks again to Kimmy Cole for coming on the podcast today. Listeners, I have a couple favors to ask of you. This is a brand new podcast, so I need your help first and foremost. As Kimmy mentioned during our interview, I would love to have feedback and ideas, suggestions about what you want to hear. I am more than willing to shape this podcast a little bit to make sure that it is enjoyable and informative and what you all want to hear. So shoot me an email. My email address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R at renoites.com. Let me know who you want to hear on the podcast, what kind of conversations you would be interested in. Secondly, please do me a favor if you have a moment now and find Renoites on your podcast app of choice. Give us a good review. If you enjoy the podcast, feel free to leave a review for us. Let other listeners know how much you enjoy it. That will help people find the podcast and hopefully it will encourage them to give it a listen. That's all I got for you this week. See you all again next time.